0: My name is Roselau Terrace. I'm going to be a freshman at American University this fall, and I interned for the Claire booth Luce Center for Conservative Women last semester. Our next speaker, Liz Wheeler, profiled by Politico Magazine as a titan of conservative media, is known for her show Tipping Point with Liz Wheeler on One America News Network. Her Final Point videos that aired at the end of her show received millions of views on Facebook. Liz attended Penn State University with a bachelor's degree in political science and a minor in homeland security after graduating high school at 16. In college, she served as the commissioner on the Board of Zoning Appeals in her hometown in Ohio and was the youngest person in her city's history to hold that position. Liz also organized a group of 14 young conservatives to self-publish a handbook called Young Conservative and Why It's Smart to Be Like Us, which reached number two on Amazon's Kindle bestseller list in the civics category. She has been named a top 10 30 under 30 conservative rising star by Red Alert Politics in 2016 and has also spoken at many conservative conferences and conventions such as CPAC, the Steamboat Institute, Freedom Conference, and many more. Please welcome Liz Wheeler.
1: Thank you, thank you. Hi ladies, my name is Liz Wheeler and I appreciate the introduction. I wanna give a big uh, thank you for, to the Center for Conservative Women for having me and for hosting all of you all for uh, this conference. I hope you appreciate how amazing it is to be able to be in the same room with other like-minded uh, women. I think we've all experienced a time where we feel very isolated or very alone in our morals and values, so look around you and take a minute to appreciate what an incredible opportunity uh, this is to be here today. So my name is Liz Wheeler. I host the show Tipping Point on One American News Network. We are a one-hour news show that challenges all the liberal talking points and rhetoric day after day, and they certainly supply us with a lot of it. (laughs) So what I wanna do tonight is I wanna talk to you about the history of whaling in Nantucket and how that has impacted our economy over the past 400 years. Oh no, wait, that is what my husband made me listen to on the five hour drive up here. That is not what we will be talking about tonight. Uh, I took a nap and for good reason. Okay, what I actually wanna do tonight should be a little bit more fun. So you have learned a lot of information at this conference so far, right? A lot of good stuff. And I assume you come in knowing your stuff to begin with. So you probably feel extra equipped with all these different talking points, all these different uh, new angles, all these different tactics for how to defeat the left. Correct? Yes. So what I want to do tonight is I want to teach you how to take that information and essentially weaponize it to use to defeat the left. Because I think a lot of times, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of times we as conservatives will feel like we know the answer. We know what's right, we know our stuff, but when we get into a conversation with liberals, sometimes we feel stumped. We feel, oh, how do I answer that? I know I'm right, I know I'm morally right, I know I'm factually right, I know I read that in a book somewhere, but we don't remember how to articulate it right. So that's what we're gonna do tonight. I'm gonna show you how to do it so that the next time you're on campus or you're talking to your boyfriend's father or you're talking to anybody who is of a different political view, you will know how to very politely, very calmly, completely defeat them. So we're gonna do this on many different topics. Do you guys have pen and paper to take notes? Okay, so this, I'm not going to require you to take notes on my entire speech, but there are a couple things I want you to write down as we go along tonight, which you'll understand towards the end of my speech. So we're gonna talk about multiple topics, but the example that I wanna to give to explain to you how to do this uh, to start will be socialism. This is the topic of the day from the Democrats. They tell us it's wonderful. We know it's horrible. But it's kind of shocking, isn't it? If you look at polls, how many people in our generation, people that we go to school with, maybe our friends, uh, actually buy into that. And sometimes it's hard to know how to defeat that without, again, getting very intellectual or talking about moments in history that are obscure to us because we didn't live through them. They don't feel personal to us. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to teach you a strategy for how to uh, identify the left's agenda behind their policies and then how to destroy it. So what I mean by this is you and I know that the left's goal is um, to create a bigger government, right? To put government in charge, to take rights away from us and to have government bureaucrats dictating to us what they think is moral, what they think is right, what we should do and say and how we should act and what we should believe and how that applies to the workplace. They want to make the decisions, and they don't want us to make any decisions. And that's fundamentally wrong to begin with from a moral standpoint. But I think uh, I think I speak for a lot of the ladies in this room when I say, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to decide that for myself. So we're going to start tonight with a strategy that I call unpack, define, and debate. And what I mean by these three things, unpack, define, and debate, it's first you have to identify what the left's ulterior motives are. And for this, I'm going to use the example of the Green New Deal. So the Green New Deal, right. <laughs> so the Green New Deal, they tell us is about climate change, right? But we know it's not about climate change. If we look, you know, it doesn't ha- you don't have to look very deeply. It's a six-page document. If you look, if you look at this six-page document on uh, any congressional website, AOC's congressional website or, you know, the web archive feature where the truth is, Uh, after she pulled it down, you can see that the policies in the Green New Deal are not particularly pertinent to our environment. You know, universal basic income, how does that have to do with trash, how does that have to do with recycling, Um, getting rid of cows, like these things are not, getting rid of billionaires, these things are not pertinent to our environment. So we have to identify what, um, what the ulterior motive is. So essentially with the Green New Deal, we have the Democrats using this as a medium to usher socialism into our nation, right? They're telling us that uh, we have to address climate change and that's that's their sales pitch essentially, but really they're using it to get socialism into our nation. So that's sort of um, what I mean by unpack. Then once you unpack it, and I'm gonna show you how to unpack it in just a second, but I want to, I wanna outline this first. After you unpack it and you figure out The left's ulterior motives, then you want to define what it is. And what I mean by define, I mean that very literally. When we're talking about socialism, we can't just say, oh, socialism, it's killed tons of people. We have to define exactly what it means, because there's a shocking number of our peers who don't know what the technical economic definition of socialism is, what it means to our community, what it means to our laws, and what it means to our economy. So we have to define what it is that we are trying to defeat after we've identified it. So we unpack it, we define it, and then we debate it once we have set the stage for how we want to debate. Okay, so going back to the Green New Deal, I'm going to show you first how to unpack it, and then we'll get to, the, then we'll get to define it, then we'll get to debate it. So if we take the Green New Deal, we have to ask ourselves, how did we get to a point in our nation where we have not just some obscure freshman congresswoman, but every single 2020 Democratic presidential candidate who has signed on to a piece of legislation so vague that we don't really know what it will do, but the parts that we do know uh, about it tell us that we wouldn't be able to fly an airplane to Hawaii. We would have to take a train. How did we get to this point? Because it's so, it's so absurd. It's so eminently ridiculous. We have to say, how did the Democrats trick so many people to get to this point? Well, we look at what they do. We go back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and we, walk, we look for their strategy. We look for their strategy. What did they start doing? You Probably before you and I were even born. What did they start doing in the 1970s? They started talking about climate change. And they didn't talk about it scientifically. They talked about it emotionally. They told us that this was something that was gonna destroy our lives as we know it. They told us the polar bears were gonna die. They told us the ice caps were melting. They started using language and rhetoric that stokes fear. So we feel this fear, especially as young women. We feel um, preemptive protection for our families, our children, our future children, our grandchildren. We want them to be able to grow up you know, in a yard with grass and go sledding in the winter like we did when we were children. We don't want them to live in some uh, destroyed version of our earth where snow has melted and deserts have burned out and the climate is completely ruined. So they plant the seed, the seed of fear. And then they create urgency. They say, if we don't do something soon, we're going to get past the point of no return. So that plants in our mind, not only the seed of fear, but that impetus that we need to take action. And they do this, and they repeat this over and over. I used to work for, before I worked for One America News, I worked for a veteran advocacy organization. And I worked in uh, their messaging and their marketing department. And we always operated by this rule of marketing that people had to hear something seven times before they would buy it. You know, whether it's a product. I mean, it doesn't take me that long to see an ad on Instagram and buy it. but. <laughs> maybe a little, bit, a little bit less for the social media generation, but people have to hear it a certain number of times before they'll buy into it. But once they've heard it, no matter how ridiculous it is, a certain amount of times, they put a level of credibility to it, whether or not that credibility is deserved. It becomes normalized to them. So that's what the left did. They planted that seed of fear. They created that urgency, that impetus of, oh, what do we do, how do we save this? And then they repeated it until it became normalized, it, normalized to us. And then they told us, well, the free market, the private sector, they've had their opportunity to fix this. We've already given them their chance. They, they failed, they couldn't do it. So the only people that can solve this problem, they tell us, is us, government, government bureaucrats. So what have they done, fear, urgency? They've said the private sector can't fix this, we can fix this, we're the only ones that can fix this. And then they bring it to a head, they tell us, well, this, at, this isn't something that's going to happen in the, you know, indefinite future. This is something that if we don't do in 12 years, you guys have heard that line, right? 12 years, 2030, and we're all dead. They cite the United Nations, very, very nonpartisan group. Those people, you can really count on them for science. They cite the United Nations and say 12 years, and we're dead if we don't do something radical. They use the word radical. And then, once they've prepped us, Once they've planted the fear and stoked the urgency, once they've told us the private sector can't fix it and that government's the only way that we can solve this problem or we're gonna die in 12 years, then, only then, did they give us the Green New Deal. And so what do people feel when they see this? Do they look inside of it and do they think about it critically? Or do they think, finally, finally, we're going to be saved from this, our lives are gonna be put back to normal and we're going to be the generation that solved this moral crisis. And people don't look at it. That is how you unpack the Democrats ulterior motive. You look at what they did whether it's short game or whether it's long game and you unpack it to look at what they're actually trying to do. The Democrats know that if they try to sell socialism directly to us if they say hi I'm whatever John Smith and I'm running for president of the United States and I'm a socialist a lot of people are gonna be like buzz off. So what do they do? They tell us it's about climate. Meanwhile, you unpack it. You unpeel the layers of that onion, and what do you find in there? Just straight-up socialism. You find government-run healthcare at a universal basic income, guaranteed jobs, free college, you know, redistribution of wealth to the point that it's immoral and egregious to have billionaires that even exist in our nation anymore. It is just socialism. So once you've unpacked it, you can do this with any topic, any political topic. And this is the point, I want you to write down two of the political topics in our current discourse that you believe are either the most critical or are your pet topics, your favorite topics. Write them down because we're going to come back to them. So you unpack it to find out what their ulterior motive is. And once you know socialism is their ulterior motive, you define it. What is socialism? This is not a rhetorical question. Anyone can throw it out. What is socialism, the definition of socialism? That's right. It's government being in charge of the means of production and distribution in an economy. So Democrats, of course, are going to say, well, that's not what we want. We just want everyone owning, everyone owning collectivism, everyone owning it. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? If government taxes all your profits away, it's the same redistribution as if government owns the means of production and distribution. Just a little, a little tiny bit different of a definition, but the ends are the same. Once you define it, no one wants it, because no one wants to give up their labor to the government, have the government give the fruits of their labor, which is part of who we are, to somebody else who didn't earn that. So you unpack it, you define it, and then you debate it. And now we get to the fun part. This is the part where I want you to picture, you don't have to picture a specific person in your life, but I want you to picture being in a conversation at a coffee shop, on your college campus, one-on-one with a liberal. If a liberal asks you, what's wrong with democratic socialism? Why shouldn't we have that here? Isn't that fair? What do you say? And you can, you can raise your hands here. What do, you, what do you say in response to that? Who wants to answer that? <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay, so when you when you address your friends, do you do you address them and uh, maybe we'll do maybe we'll do almost like role playing. If I'm if I'm your liberal friend and I say, "What's wrong with socialism?" You know, why wouldn't we have that here? I mean, it is it is we do want to help. We do want to help people who are worse off and, you know, a billionaire doesn't need all of that money, doesn't need the yacht, doesn't need the private jet. I mean, what's wrong with that? How how do you respond? So, do you respond by bringing up all your talking points? for socialism, because I think we all have sort of a, and I know this is an outdated reference, but sort of a card catalog in our heads, right, of talking points for every topic. The things that we know to be true uh, on our side and the things that we know to be false from the Democrats. How do, how do you respond to that? Pretend that I'm, I'm a leftist. What's wrong with socialism? Well, I would know. like, I do it more personally with friends that I know really well, so. Like, okay. I'm gonna make up things about you. <laughs> that might be true. But, um, you know, when well, you started your own business and you made $100,000 last year, but if I only made 50,000, now I get 25,000 of yours so that we can be equal. And just things like that, I bring it personal to them so that they can see what they would lose. From. Okay, that's a really good topic, first of all. So you're a terrible example for the first question because usually we have to teach the, ta- the tactics. So no, that's a re- it's a really good thing to do to be able to do personally. I will say, if you don't know the person personally, it makes it more difficult. So I would say that's exactly right, to put, make it personal and bring it home. I think that's why a lot of people in our generation, um, why socialism seems okay to them, because they don't feel it in their personal life. If there's a way to make them feel it in their personal life, hopefully, hypothetically, then that works personally. But if the person is not, if you don't know them intimately enough to know the situations in their life that socialism was, would hurt, the best way to go about this, and this this is what I do, by the way, on my show every night, we debate a Democrat at the end, the last segment of the hour-long show every night, is to ask them questions. And so this is how you take the information that you know, the information in your card catalog um, of why socialism is bad, and this is how you learn how uh, to phrase it to come back to them. So one of the examples that, one of the examples that I mean is, and by the way, I'm talking about very calm questions, very rational questions, I'm not talking about escalating Um, escalating the debate. We're not talking about, you know, the news clips that are very fun to watch, you know, the two-minute videos on Facebook, which I'm guilty of sometimes. Um, I'm talking about in a realistic way to change hearts and minds. You say, well, where in the world has socialism ever worked? And then you're quiet. And this is a problem that I have, being quiet, because my first inclination, and you probably can relate to this, my first inclination is to drop my information bomb, to say, listen, I have two books worth of information about why you're wrong and why I'm right. Let me just give it to you all so that you can tell how wrong you are. That's not a tactic you wanna use. It's not gonna work. What you wanna do is you wanna ask a simple question, where in the world has socialism ever worked? And they're gonna point to Scandinavia and you can point out why Scandinavia isn't really socialist. Or you can go to another question and you can say, well, you want democratic socialism. What's the difference between democratic socialism and regular old socialism? and you be quiet, and you listen for them to answer that question. Because that does two things. It not only exposes exactly what they're talking about, it lets you set the stage. It lets you direct how the conversation is going to go. You're playing on your home field to use a sports reference. It puts the the conversation in your power if you ask those tiny, calm questions to direct the conversation because there's no way that they can pivot, there's no way they can get away from it, and those answers expose either the fallacy of their position or the truth in your own, okay? So who has a topic that they wrote down before when I asked? Not socialism. Any other topic? You do? Yes. What's your name? Daniela. Daniela. So I wrote down as well these two U.S.-Israel relations. Okay. So what's the most common liberal talking point that you hear from the left when it comes to that? That Israel is a bully in the Middle East. Right. So they murder innocent children, right? They just bomb with no abandon and just terrible, terrible people who are, you know, have no reason to be attacking the poor Palestinians in the way that they are. They're just aggressive people. How do you respond to that? Right. So how do you think a leftist is going to respond to that? Uh, they usually just walk away. Right. So you don't, but you don't want them to walk away, right? Yeah, no, I'd rather engage in of this course, but since they don't really handle that well. So the way to, the way to get around that, because that's a very common reaction. It's, it's also just a human nature reaction, something that I think is important to remember when you're talking to leftists. If you are aggressive and you try to information bomb, put yourself in their position. You'd probably want to shut down and walk away, too, because it's kind of overwhelming. So the, the thing to do is ask a calm. Quiet question. Say, which side uses children as human shields? (laughs) Say, which side warns innocent people to move out of the way, planning their attacks in advance? Each piece of information that you said is 100% correct, but when you drop it in an information bomb, it's overwhelming and it makes the other person shut down. If you ask a short, calm question, it's gonna draw them out, okay? So every, every time, and it's, it goes against your inclination. It go, I, I mean, i have actually on the show today, so we filmed my show before uh, early today in advance because we were going to drive up here, and I sort of lost my cool with the Democrat that was on the show this morning. He was being ridiculous about the Mueller report. Ridiculous. He was saying that, you know, Attorney General Barr is staging some sort of cover-up, and there's no reason to delay this, and we should see it unredacted. And instead of saying... Instead of responding the way that I should have, I should have said, well, is there a federal law that prohibits the release of grand jury proceedings? And he would have had to say, well, yes, there is, and that's why it needs to be redacted. You know, I went off on him because he was being very annoying. Um, it, was not, it was not my best debate moment, but I could have trapped him if I'd done it better. If I'd exercised some self-control in that debate, I could have actually uh, led him to exactly where I wanted him to go. I wanted him to admit that Attorney General Barr is currently following the law, redacting classified information and information pertinent to grand jury proceedings or ongoing investigations, and that there's no reason to suspect a cover up unless you're just so psychotically leftist that you can't accept the truth. And I could have led him to that if I'd done it right, but I didn't. And so now I'm teaching you how to do it right. <laughs> All right, so does anyone have another topic? Yes. Social equity in our schools. Do you support school choice? Yeah. Yeah, you do. Conservatives do because that's the way to get social equity in our schools. So what's the liberal argument here against school choice? What, what would a liberal, if you were engaging with a liberal, what would the liberal say to you when you say, I support school choice? Well, that's
0: a privilege. Because, you know, school choice, you have to, you have, to
1: have the money to pay for that. So how would you respond if a liberal said that to you? If they said, well, that really, does, you know, that really is you know, a scheme for, for richer people, that really doesn't help us out. How would you respond to that? I don't know. Let me think. <laughs> I don't know. A question, a calm question. You would say, who takes advantage in the highest percentage of voucher programs? What socioeconomic class of people? Low-income people do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You would ask a calm rational question. You would say, well, in Florida, this past midterm election, um, Democratic women, Democratic voters, African American women, were actually the ones, if you analyze that race, they were actually the ones who elected Republican Governor Ron DeSantis because he was um, a proponent of school choice. They voted for the Democrat for Senate, and they voted for the Republican for governor because DeSantis' opponent, Andrew Gillum, said, you know, that school choice was terrible and he was going to decimate that program. And Ron DeSantis said, no, I think we should do that. That's great for our kids. So you can use a calm question. Don't drop that information bomb on them right then. But you can say, well, what about the 100,000 African-American women in Florida who thought it would be better for their children to have a school choice program? Are you saying that you know better than they do about their children's education? And what are they going to say? It's going to put it in a different perspective and it's going to... It's going to bring the conversation back to where you want it to be rather than just some vague, you know, social equity that they haven't even defined. So always remember, phrase it as a question and phrase it as a, it's a leading question. It's actually the type of question that, you know, lawyers aren't supposed to ask the jury. You lead them to the answer that you want them to give because there's only one right answer there. And if they answer in the way that you've led them to answer, then they can't really take their own position without contradicting themselves. And that's really, it's, it's, it's a trick, but it's a rhetorical trick to combat the rhetoric, the talking points that the left uses to mask the real agenda. And w- if we, as conservatives, master this um, in a way that empowers us to be able to do this ourselves in our regular lives, instead of waiting for, um, instead of waiting for someone, you know, a talking head on TV or waiting for that spine, that congressman to finally grow a spine. If we take it into our own hands and equip ourselves to do this, learn how to do this tactic and feel comfortable doing it, then we are going to be able to help change the narrative across our entire country. We are going to be able to spread conservatism outside of the, outside of the bubble of people that we already know who already share our values, and we're going to be able to reach out to the other side and convert them. And that's what we're here for, right? Right. All right. We'll do, we'll do one more of these. Does anyone else have um, a topic idea? Sure. What's your name? Janie. Janie. Okay, so I'm gonna play the leftist here, ready? Okay. Cow emissions. We have to stop people from eating meat. It's not only a humane issue, but that CO2 emissions, it's the fault of those bovines that our children are never gonna know a polar bear. How do you respond? Do you know how many people in America an average farmer feeds? Yes, perfect. A question, a question, a simple, calm question. So how's the leftist going to respond to that? Right. Well, if they know, then doesn't that make them a terrible person for taking that position? If they don't know, then you very calmly and respectfully educate them. I think this is another point that I want to make. So sometimes for entertainment, it's very entertaining to trap a leftist, right? To see them... It is, to see them have the proverbial brain smoke down or splutter or try to pivot. But truly what is one of the hardest things as not just young women, what is one of the hardest things as human beings for us to do? To admit that we're wrong. Because we're afraid of losing face, it's embarrassing. It's hard to be able to change your mind on a position when things are so polarized. So even though it's entertaining to destroy the left in that way, And even though it's satisfying and you probably get a dopamine rush from it, (laughs) if you actually want to change hearts and minds, what do you have to do? You have to create a loving environment that allows someone to see the light. And that's why, that's why you have to stay calm. That's why you have to ask those questions. Because even if the person doesn't change their mind right then, and they won't, I they won't. That's not how human nature works. You've planted that seed. You've given them, you've empowered them with that information that they can think over later. Maybe they'll Google it. Maybe they'll hear it the next time a politician actually uses it instead of letting it go one ear in one ear and out the other. You will have started. You will have given them the opportunity to start their conversion, and that counts for something. And I said that was the last one, but I want to do one more. Does anyone over here? Well, someone over here raised their hand before. I think it was you. Um, so gay marriage, so like supporting like if a is talking to, you or someone talking to gay marriage. Why do you hate gay people? <laughs> how do you respond to that? That's what, the liber- that's what the left is going to say to you.
0: Do you think that there's a biological difference between males and females?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I don't know that that one's pertinent to gay marriage. That one's more pertinent to the transgender issue, I think. But that's exactly the kind of question that you want to ask. It's kind of a close-ended question. Do you think there's a difference between men and women? I mean, please, yes? Or you're anti-science. Um, yeah. but But gay marriage I don't I don't think that I don't think that's pertinent to gay marriage though so
0: you asked me why do you you said why do you hate gay
1: people yeah like that's well that's what the left is going to say to you if you say oh I support traditional marriage you know whether it's informed by my religious beliefs or I mean most whether it's informed by my religious beliefs or tradition throughout the world whatever it is they're immediately going to say well you're discriminating against gay people you know why don't you want them to be happy This is, By the way, this is a great topic, and I can tell it makes people uncomfortable. And conservatives should not, absolutely not, should not cede ground to the left on social issues. They're uncomfortable topics, but they're really, really important foundational topics that we need to be able to have a conversation about without the left uh, successfully labeling us as a bigot. I'm talking about the transgender issue. I'm talking about gay marriage. I'm talking about abortion. I'm talking about just sexual morality in general. We should not... Seed ground to the left. We should be able to have these conversations and not brush them aside. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's why I asked, because this is a big thing for me. Like, I want to know how to refute it. But I guess, do you want me to just ask another question?
1: Can no, you no, say? I mean, if you don't know how to are answer we- that, I'm, I, I want to teach you all how to do this, because there are two really, really effective ways. Now, the left is still going to call you a bigot, and if you're not, I assume, you know, we're not. Um, if you're not, then you have to just let that roll off, their ba- off your back, but it's not about gay people is it, gay marriage? It's not about your feelings, even your religious views on homosexuality at all. It's about an institution that government is redefining. And we can't let government step in and redefine things and force us, force churches, force religious people to let the government dictate how we practice our religion, right? We have a constitutional protection against that very thing. In regards to discrimination, it's not not discriminating against gay people. A gay man is just as free to go out and marry a straight woman as a straight man is. And a straight man is just as prohibited, if gay marriage were illegal, uh, to marry another man as a gay man is. It's not about sexual orientation. It's not about the people. It's about government telling us what we have to believe and what we have to celebrate. And so you have to separate those two things. The left has been extremely successful. This is maybe the most successful the left has ever been in defining a narrative where they have conflated the two things. Opposition to gay marriage with dislike bigotry or homophobia against gay people. Opposition to gay marriage doesn't. And I think, I I hope I speak for the majority of people here, when I say opposition to gay marriage or support for traditional marriage is absolutely unrelated to our feelings about gay people. Absolutely nothing to do with it. You know, even, even religious beliefs, and I know I don't have time to go into that, although I could speak for an hour on that. Even religious beliefs do not teach that there's anything less about gay people, that there's any reason why gay people should be treated as less. Christian beliefs, I'm Catholic, a practicing Catholic. The Catholic Church has been the, oh, I saw that face. The Catholic Church has been the stalwart standing against gay marriage uh, more than any other institution in the history of the world. And they call us to treat every single person, no matter their gender, no matter their sexual orientation, no matter their identity with dignity and respect and as a child of God. And it's actually partially our fault as conservatives and as Christians, as many of you are Christians, correct? As Christians, for how we have uh, misinterpreted church teachings and we have participated in the oppression of gay people to our detriment over the last 200 years, part of the reason we are having this pendulum swing on this social issue of gay marriage and the transgender issue is because of of how we have failed in... Treating gay people the way that God calls us as Christians to treat gay people, even as we oppose gay marriage and support traditional marriage. And so, those different types of things, like I said, we cannot be afraid to talk about this. And we have to identify immediately the difference and the difference between opposition to gay marriage and opposition to gay people. And if you pull that apart and you explain it to them, and I've done this personally before, not just on my show, I've done this with friends who are either very pro gay marriage or are gay themselves and explained to them that there's a huge difference between the two and the left has twisted them together. But you talk to most conservatives, I would say the vast majority of conservatives and it's not the same thing to conservatives. And so I know that that's not the short, the short question, yeah, but is, it starts yeah, with a short a question. question. That you ha-
0: like is there a question that you can uh, like, say in response? Yes, the question they-
1: you say in response is, do you think opposition to gay marriage means that conservatives hate gay people? And if they say yes, then say, well, let me, tell you, let me tell you the truth. And you can give examples, too, of how conservatives and how a lot of Christians now um, are, are socially sticking up for gay people. It's conservatives in this country who are speaking out the loudest about the uh, persecution of gay people in Iran or in Saudi Arabia in the Middle East. It's conservatives. It's not the left. It's conservatives who are talking about the exploitation of transgender youth, while the, left's, while the left are the ones who are exploiting those children. So if you actually unpeel that onion again, and you look at it, opposition to gay marriage is not at all tied to either policy, personal position, or religious beliefs about homosexuality in general. And we have, to, you know, we have to put an ax right in between that. And we have to make sure that we do not allow the left to conflate that. Thank you. Of course. Sorry, I told you that that would go off on a tangent to me. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Um, OK, so just to round back to the beginning of this, um, when, we see, when we see the left. Whether they're on TV, whether this is people in Congress, when we hear their talking points and we want to be able to defeat them ourselves and not leave it to someone else, what do we do? First we unpack, we figure out what their ulterior motive is, what their underlying agenda is, and we identify that. And then we identify what the medium that they're using. Again, going back to the Green New Deal. Socialism is their agenda. The Green New Deal is um, the carriage that they're using to try to advance that agenda. Once we, have, once we have unpacked that, then we define it. We make sure that the debate that we're having is the debate of the real issue, and not some periphery, pivotal, tangential point that the left wants to make to try to stay away from the heart of the matter. So we define it. What is socialism? Or you know, if we're talking about abortion, the heartbeat bill in Georgia, or Governor Northam in Virginia talking about infanticide, you don't talk about the peripheral issues. You go back to the heart of the matter. When does life begin? If life begins at conception, as science says it does, keeping religion out of it, then what right do we have to end that life? We do not let them distract us with all of their peripheral issues. We go right to the heart of the matter. You define what the debate that you want to have is. And then you get to debate them. And you start that debate with what? A question, a calm question, that defines the court on which you will be playing this debate. It leads them to exactly the answer that you want them to give, which will either trap them or cause them to contradict themselves, or it will plant the seed and they will think about it later. And if we do this, as I'm just going to repeat what I said before, if we do this, we will win the culture wars. We will start to turn the tide on those culture wars, and we will be the ones leading that charge. We are the next generation of conservative women. We are going to be the ones who are speaking out, not just just on economic topics, but on social issues. Women are typically the ones who lead that charge. Women were the ones who ushered in abortion, and we women should be the ones to usher that out. And so my my hope today is that you leave this, that, that you leave this conference as a whole, but you leave this my part of the my speech specifically feeling like you know how to take part, feeling like if you walked up to a leftist or heard a leftist talking point, that you can start constructing those questions in your mind. You know, I'm I'm pretty nerdy about what I do. I over-prepare for my show. I, you know, I I don't I don't read it off on the show, but I think about what the left is going to say about a certain topic before I enter into a debate, because then you're not caught off guard. And once you think about what they're going to say, you can prepare those questions ahead of time for your mental bank, for your card catalog of information. And I mean, it's, it's, it's what we have to do. And my hope is that after hearing this, you will feel like you're able to do that and take part in it. And it's also why, um, this is really exciting. I'm so excited to be able to share this with you. This is also why I'm writing a book about this. This tiny little, thank you, this tiny little blip today, it just just scratches the surface of what's in my book. And my book is a handbook for us, for all of us, about how we can go out and how we can defeat the left. Not wait for somebody else to do it, but do it ourselves. I think you guys got um, a handout about it. I hope you'll check it out. Um, you can pre-order it now if you want to make my day. Um, But otherwise, it is uh, releasing in August, so if you do get it, when you do get it, let me know what you think. Let me know if this uh, helps you feel empowered to have these debates, and then share those debates with others, because we're going to start that revolution. We're going to take back um, our country for conservatives. Thank you. Do you guys want to do questions? Yes.
0: Hey, my name's Hi. Ellie. Um, first of all, I just want to say you look amazing. Like you. Thank are the, you. you are so pretty. Anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just a lot of makeup and hairspray. I was, I was going to say your hair looks so good. Um, anyways, this is like
1: after taking a nap in the car too.
0: <laughs> no one can tell, trust me. Um, <laughs> um, I guess my question is I tend to be a lot better at speaking speak or not speaking at writing than speaking and I don't know you speak so clearly do you have any tips on um, really getting to the point sometimes I struggle with that
1: (laughs) Um, writing is the key I mean reading and writing are the key to a concise argument so if you ever feel that your attention span is short if you ever feel like and we all do right it's because of our phones put down your phone Um, whenever, and this this is a personal thing that I've noticed. So I have to be tied to my cell phone because of what I do for a living. I have to know exactly what everyone's saying. I have to know exactly what news is breaking. I have to read about it. So, you know, every time that notification comes up, I pick up my phone. And if I do that too much, I notice that my attention span is shorter. And if I put my phone down and pick up a book and sort of like... It's, it's almost like a drug addict actually, trying to push through, trying to push through withdrawal. If you read for 15 minutes, you're like, oh man, I wonder who texted me. I wonder what Twitter's saying. If you push through that, you kind of break through that wall of a short attention span and start really getting into that book. And if you start really getting into the book, you, um, it, it informs how you speak, actually. It informs grammatically, it informs vocabulary. It informs the way that you um, logically organize your arguments. And so my best advice is to put down your phones for a little while, read a book, and then if you feel that your personal strength is writing, do exactly what I said before. Write down, you know, the ten issues that Democrats talk about the most. Write down uh, underneath those ten issues, write down, you know, two or three, however many you want, of the most common talking points, and then write down what you believe is the heart of the matter. You know, with abortion, I said it's when life begins. With the Green New Deal, it's does socialism actually work? And is socialism actually moral? You know, each each issue, you can write it down. Because then, you just have to revert back to your writing. And you don't think about the speaking aspect of it. You think about the logic part of it. Sure. Who's next? What's your name? Oh, I'm Katrina. Katrina?
0: Um, thank you for coming to speak to us today. Um, my question. Is I'm a big fan of the probing question. Um, I use it for my with my teachers a lot. Excellent. Um, it
1: works really well.
0: But the one thing it that also will work with your boyfriend.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I say that while my husband's back there. So,
0: <laughs> um, but the one thing that I have um, discovered is that sometimes um, my leftist friends or my teachers or they'll swerve or they'll yeah. um, they'll like. Change the subject, uh, change the question, right. answer something else, and it's like, no, that's not what I asked you. Right. Um, so, how would you like revert that back to your original question?
1: Let them get all the BS out that they have. So that that's actually something that I talk about in my book a little bit about how if you're going into a debate, and I see this, I see this on TV because a lot because I do the same thing. I prepare, you know, the talking points that I want. I know the leftist has the talking points that they want, and it doesn't matter what you say to them if they have like uh, five or six talking points prepared, they will hammer those talking points. Even if you say, how you doing today? They'll be like, well, here's why I hate Donald Trump. And I'm like, <laughs> not what I asked, but sure. Um, you have to let them, don't interrupt them at the beginning. Let them get all their talking points out. Let them go for a minute, especially if this is a personal conversation and you're not on, you don't have a producer in your ear yelling at you You know, two minutes. Like if you're not on a time clock, let them get all their BS out. Afterward, they won't have one of those talking points to pivot to. I mean, it it may be a little bit different for a teacher because the teacher is in the power position in that situation. They can define the conversation. But anywhere else where it's not a power deficit in that way, let them get out all the BS and then say, "Okay, but what about your original question? And then where are they going to pivot to? They've already dumped all of their information. Their information bomb on you, just let it slide by. And then you can redefine the conversation. If they repeat it, you can be like, yeah, you said that before, but what about... And keep going like that. It won't always work, but there are little little—they're little conversational tactics that um, that you can use. And the left are very, they're actually, they've beat us rhetorically for a long time because we tend to be, you know, stereotypically maybe our nose in an economics book. And they're learning, they're learning how to, um, I don't know, have cocktail chatter. Like, you know, they're learning how to do do that kind of stuff, very surface level and very, and we're very, at the very intellectual level comparatively. But that doesn't always win a debate, the intellectual level. Um, so yeah, just bring it back to where you were originally and go from there. Sure. One more question. Hi, um, I'm Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Jeremy? Okay. Um,
0: so it's easier to engage with people like that and kind of a back and forth when they're actually willing to talk to you. Yeah. But how do you deal with people or groups on campus who instead of engaging with you just kind of come and you know, spit in front of your displays, wash away your chalk, take pictures of you and post it on their group's social media and act like they are engaging, when in reality, they're just ignoring the issues?
1: Well, two things. I think that's probably the situation where you can go ahead and go for that dopamine rush. Just go ahead and destroy them. You don't have to be productive. <laughs> um, I think questions still work to a certain extent. I mean, if there's violence, I mean, I never don't engage that. Just film it and get out of there. Um, but don't engage that. But if if they're just being disrespectful, you can ask, say, "Do you think that spitting is respectful of other people?" You know, you can just ask questions like that to kind of bring it up. I mean, you're not you're probably not going to have a productive conversation. Um, in that situation. But you can always, you can always invite them, if, especially if you are doing a video or something like that that you're trying to expose them. You can say, listen, you're coming over here and you're spitting in front of our table, but we'd love to invite you for a debate, not, not right now when tempers are high, but we'd love to invite you for a debate um, to talk about the things that are important to you. Are you interested in doing that? And if they say yes, then great, because that'll have to be a calmer debate. If they say no, then it'll be like, well, aren't you a loser? <laughs> That would be my recommendation, but a lot of those campus groups, I mean, they they are getting a little more um, agitated, and so I mean, I don't have to tell you, ladies, this. Just be very cautious of those confrontations because it's not worth even the video if they're being destructive. Those people are not going to be the ones who are defining policy and a big part of this debate five or ten years from now. So unless they're actually willing to be normal people, then just ignore them and do your thing. Do we have time for any more? Or no. Nope, we're good. Ladies, give a big hand to the Clara booth Luce Center for Conservative Women, and thank you so much for having me.